Hello, and welcome to the Innovate IPM podcast, where we are passionate about the future of the industrial projects professions, presenting you the best of project management, people, and practices, combining the wisdom of time-tested methods with the cutting-edge technologies and advancements that are modernizing our craft. Our mission is to contribute to the growth and progress of the industrial project management community. It's time to talk scope, schedule, and budget. Let's start the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Innovate IPM podcast. I'm your host, Rob Williams. I hope you are enjoying the podcast, and if you are, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or connect with us at innovateipm.com. I'd love to hear from you. Today, we are talking with Mr. Rob Shoup of Gyrodata about gyroscopes and the role this technology plays in the work of drilling. When I think of gyroscopes, I imagine a Victorian-era bronze spinning device performing magical measurements. So thank goodness I'm not in that business. There's a lot of great uses for and variations of the gyroscopes, including the tiny electronic ones in your smartphones. Rob is passionate about this technology and its applications, as you will hear. He is currently the Operations Technical Support Manager for Gyro Data. In this role, he works with engineering, product line, and operations to develop new technologies and solutions designed to overcome the challenges of the modern oil field. Mr. Shoup has held a number of positions over the last 32 years, including VP of Special Projects, North American Regional Manager, Global Technical Services Manager, and Senior Technical Advisor. He spent five years in the field running gyroscopic surveys and orientations and integrating Gyrodata's technology with various service providers' offerings. Rob is also an active member of the Society of Petroleum Engineers and the Industry Steering Committee on Wellborn Survey Accuracy. Mr. Shoup graduated from the Institute of Electronic Science at Texas A&M University. So enjoy this conversation between Rob's about gyroscopes. Here we go. Hey, Rob, how's it going, man? Doing well, Rob, yourself? It's very good. Uh, it's, been, it's been a tricky week this past uh, week or two. Um, by the time everybody hears this, who knows what condition we'll be in, but we are in the middle of the Corona apocalypse and Houston is effectively shutting down probably today. So, uh, so this is probably the last time I'm going to be recording in the studio for a little while. How is this affecting you guys so far? Well, most everybody that can work from home uh, has been doing so for the last week. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those things I always thought, Hey, I'd love to be able to work from home, but I've got a couple of youngsters and homeschooling. Uh, homeschooling yeah, a little bit same yeah, here, that's same going here. on so that's definitely been a cha- little bit of a challenge yeah but aside from that we're doing okay and getting our work done well good good to hear so we're going to talk about gyroscopes today yes correct awesome so tell me let's just start with the basics what what is a gyroscope <clears throat> well a gyroscope basically is a wheel uh that rotates or spinning mass right that's free to gimbal uh, around its axis, uh, basically in any direction. And typical basic gyroscopic principles operate off the principle of inertia. And basically, once you get a spinning mass moving, 
up to speed and you release it, it will tend to hold its plane of reference pointed in the same direction. So early on, uh, Elmer Sperry, who patented the first gyro in the United States in 1906, his gyro system uh, was a gimbaled assembly. It consisted of two rotating masses or counter-rotating. And once it reached speed and it sat there long enough, it would align itself to the spin axis of the Earth, which is true north. Very important when you're navigating uh, ships, which uh, his early client and biggest client was the United States Navy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and every ship uh, developed and had a Sperry gyroscope on it, and most ships today still have them. Uh, they're not necessarily used for guidance anymore. Mostly on cruise ships, they're used to control uh, outriggers or fins in the water to stabilize the roll of the cruise ships and make the, the passengers more comfortable. Oh, wow. <clears throat> but that that has evolved. And so... In 1980, there was a little company called Eastman Whipstock that ran conventional gyros that operated off uh, the principle of inertia that Elmer Sperry, or the Sperry Gyroscope Company, actually developed uh, for the Sun Oil Company uh, in California. Uh, And they were running these systems that were inertial systems. You had to sight them into a known direction. Uh, They had a lot of excessive drift that could be associated with it. So they were crude instruments, but it it was uh, very good for the time. Uh, And this all started in the early 1930s, late Mm. 20s. So there was a company out of California called Inkison, and they were manufacturing uh, a gyro for the United States government uh, for missile guidance technology. They approached the engineer, head engineer over at Eastman Whipstock, and asked him if he'd be interested in it. And he actually went to the board of directors. They declined. So himself uh, and four other individuals from Eastman Whipstock decided to start a little company called Gyrodata. Okay. So that's uh, how the gyros uh, were adapted from the aerospace industry over to the oil industry. Nice. Oil and gas. So in the 1930s, you said they were, uh, that, that's about the time that they went over to Sun Oil with this technology? That's when Elmer Sperry actually was uh, approached by the uh, Sun Oil Company to develop a system or a gyro that wasn't affected by magnetic interference. Yeah. They were, they were starting to drill a lot of wells and put them close together. They did, yeah. Because I, I remember seeing all those old photos of like spindle top in Beaumont where then things were just stacked on top of each other. And I guess that was probably a little earlier than the 30s, though. That was a little earlier in the 30s. So this technology came in like in 1929 is when they were developing it. And then the early 30s is when they started running it. Gotcha. Gotcha. See, I always imagine those guys at Spindletop with like a hammer and a pin just smacking away. But they they were probably a little more advanced than that, right? (laughs) I think so. They got the job done very well, didn't they? Yeah, they did. I'm actually from that area, too. I should know more about all that. Very good, man. So, so tell me, uh, besides, besides the naval applications, besides the early oil well applications, what, what else about this makes this an important technology? So basically what we do with the gyro that we have is, uh, it's a North seeking or North referencing gyro. Mm -hmm. So we gyro compass. And basically when we stop, we make a stationary measurement. We're measuring the earth's rotational velocity. And from that, the gyro actually gets canted ever so slightly to the north or precesses uh, 
reacts in the plane perpendicular to the from <clears throat> to the applied force, which is the Earth's rotation from west to east. And so we can measure that, and that's how we know where north is. Mm. We can also measure what we call rate of change, and that's as, as we're moving uh, through a pipe, uh, conveying it some way through uh, any kind of a pipe. Typically, it's a pipe, or it could be a formation uh, that we're running in, open hole, things of that nature. We're measuring rate of change in two different axes, one being change in angle or inclination, the other being azimuthal changes or direction. So that's a very useful tool. Yeah, I think so. Sounds like it. So that is, so, yeah, so were they doing that that early on, measuring the, the velocity of the Earth's rotation in order to find the, the true north? No, what they were doing was they were using a magnetic compass to get a direction mm -hmm. to magnetic north. And then they were putting, uh, taking into account declination, which is the, the, uh, the convergence angle between magnetic north and true north. Yeah, I got it. You have to make that correction. And then they would use a rifle scope and actually sight the spinning mass or the gyro, the compass card and the compass rose towards that known direction. And from that point, every time they'd stop, it would have a camera on top and it would take a picture of an angle unit, which told them how much uh, deviation or inclination there was uh, in the in the pipe uh, or the hole. Mm -hmm. And then it would also uh, take a picture of the compass rows and the compass card so that you could actually get a direction. So uh, this technology didn't come in until the early 80s gotcha. to where we're actually measuring the Earth's rotational velocity. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds crazy. It sounds uh, super fascinating for one, but highly technical, it sounds like. Interestingly enough, there was a guy by the name of Foucault, uh, and he actually came up with the idea, and I forget, it was 1852 or something like that. Wow. Uh, he m made the first gyro or spinning wheel. Obviously, it wasn't powered by an electric motor. Right. Uh, but his whole thing was to, to study the effects of the Earth's rotation on a rotating uh, body. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting how somebody, you know, these people come up with these wild ideas back then. Way back then. Yeah. No wonder they thought they were a little crazy. It's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like witchcraft, man. Black, black magic. Well, cool. How do you, how do you apply this to, to other types of industries? Say, uh, say civil engineering. So this is what you explained was really how it works in a, a oil well, right? Correct. Okay. So some of the interesting th uh, things that we've done, we actually uh, just completed a project here a few months back where a company was putting, installing a, uh, a piece of pipe that was approximately 200 feet, uh, 48 inches in diameter. So you can imagine you've got this vertical pipe that's four feet across and they want to know uh, how deviated it is. They were given specs that they couldn't deviate off of vertical more than three inches and 100 feet. Mm -hmm. So they need to know that. And they've got a hole. They've lowered this pipe down in it. And then they're going to grout it or basically cement the outside of it. And the engineering company that they were working for gave them the spec. Yeah. So they needed to know before we cement it, does it meet specifications? So we were able to, to, to run what we call an error model because no instrument's perfect. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So we were basically able to show them that our instruments capable of doing it as long as we're aligned properly with this four foot diameter pipe. Mm-hmm. So we have what we call centrolers, which are highly accurate, uh, extremely large centralizers that hold our instrument stable in the center of a pipe. Yeah. We just didn't have them that were that size. So we actually built some extensions for it uh, and came up with it so that we had just the right amount of travel on some spring assembly so we would get the, the proper alignment. And we were able to go in and survey this, and we surveyed it on the fly so we could tell them, because another spec they had was it couldn't deviate more than an eighth of an inch over 10 feet. Hmm. So this pipe being that long could actually move to the left and to the right in, in more than one direction. So they needed to know that as well. And the fact that when we're running our, our system, we're collecting 22 data points a second, approximately, and then we can look at that information every foot. So we can look at it and we can analyze it and say, okay, how far off of a vertical line are we at any given point? Mm-hmm. And not only how far do we deviate from vertical, what direction is it? Because mm-hmm. you need to know that to be able to adjust for it. Gotcha. Right. So before they were to, they cemented it, uh, they moved this pipe. We surveyed it uh, or uh, analyzed it by running up and down and collecting this information uh, a few times to make sure that they were happy with uh, the placement and it was all in spec. Then they cemented it in. Mm. Is that when the uh, application comes in is after the hole drilled? I mean, I, I guess it has to be, right? <coughs> Correct. What, what, is the, what is the stage uh, in the process? So you drill the hole, you send the gyroscope down, and then what happens after that? Yeah, so they drill these holes, and typically what they'll do is they can, they'll have some kind of a single shot system that will typically measure just deviation, mm-hmm. right? How much angle am I, am I deviated off of a true vertical? And they'll drill these uh, with a smaller drill bit. Then they'll go in and they'll open this hole a couple of different times to try to maintain that verticality. Right. But they know they're going to walk some distance and they need to know what that distance is. But they open the hole big enough up so that they stick this 48 inch uh, pipe inside there. They might have drilled that with a 60 inch bit. Yeah. So they've got some room to actually move this pipe. Yeah. And then cement it in. I'm not sure exactly what the purpose of it is, but another uh, thing that we do uh, on the civil side of things is water wells. Okay. Uh, There's the American Water Well Association, and they have specifications for verticality when you're putting uh, water wells in. And obviously, the companies that uh, sell these pumps and motors, a lot of them are shaft-driven, so they need to know whether or not that shaft's going to hit and if it's going to hit as it's going down to turn that pump, uh, how much it's going to deflect off of it. Mm -hmm. That comes back into the point where the the pump manufacturer, if it doesn't meet certain specifications, they won't warranty the pump. Mm. And these are quite expensive. And obviously you don't want them to go out because your neighborhood might be without water for a little while. Right. Yeah. I would imagine that has some pretty tight tolerances. Something else that we've done that was kind of interesting was, uh, this will date me a little bit, but back in the 80s, I got to fly out to Nevada and go to the Nevada test facility or test site. And we were actually uh, surveying 
holes that the government were drilling that were, I can't remember the diameter exactly. I want to say they were, they're about 65 inches or bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, they needed to know the verticality and direction of these because they were tunneling in the side of a mountain. Mm-hmm. And then they were lowering, the, lowering these things that we call uh, nuclear bombs down inside there. Oh, wow. And then they would cover it all up and they, uh, they bore in through this, in these tunnels and then they would put all this instrumentation in there, backfill it all. Mm-hmm. And that's how they were testing bombs underground. Wow. They were testing them underground? They were testing them underground. Oh, goodness. They haven't done that in a long time, we've been told. We hope not anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. But it was interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. So so does the I know that some of the the drilling now is horizontal. So where we have fracking and things like that, they're going in vertically and then tapering off horizontally. Does the gyroscope travel through horizontal? It sounds like it does. It does. Yeah, yeah we do it all the time. And there, there's a couple of ways. We can pump it with fluid yeah. where uh, there's actually mud pumps that pump fluid down either through the casing or through drill pipe. Mm-hmm. And, or it could be a pipeline. We've done a lot of pipeline surveys. Uh, for instance, uh, I've been to, to Florida several times, and they're going to put a new bridge in, say, over the intercoastal waterway, and they've got several pipes that run across underneath. They need to know where they are because they have uh, an as-built, which is just basically uh, an AutoCAD drawing they've got that has all the infrastructure there. Right. And from one side of the intercoastal to the other, they've got a straight line. Well, they know that that pipe didn't go exactly straight across. But they need to know that, and we can survey that from point to point, Mm -hmm. and then we can tell them exactly where that pipe is in the water. So if they go to do test bores, they don't drill through pipes. Gotcha. Which... Uh, we've gone out and actually surveyed some where they actually did that. Yikes. That, yeah. that does not sound good for the environment. <laughs> not good. Well, t- typically these are fiber optic lines oh, okay. and in one case it was a water line. Yeah. Uh, so still though. Yeah. Tra- traveling through that. So if you've got a, if you've got a pipe with fiber optics in it, like I'm trying to imagine what this device looks like, cause I really don't know. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners don't really know either. What does a device look like and, and how do you fix it in something that's full of fiber optics? Okay, so th- that's actually a good point. Um, so our typical device is uh, about nine feet long and it fits in a 1.8 uh, OD pressure housing. Okay. On either end of it, we put centralizers so that we can centralize this. And anything from two and seven eighths tubing that's got a 2.44 uh, ID uh, all the way up to 48 inches, which I mentioned earlier, which was this huge pipe. Mm-hmm. So uh, in the case where we've done fiber optics, a lot of times what they'll do when they do these, uh, what they call a river crossing, or they're, they'll bore underneath a channel or a waterway. Uh, and then, then they'll pull back a series of ducts. So it'll be like one big pipe. And then you might have seen them on the side of the road where they're pulling this little plastic pipe, like yellow and blue pipe. Looks like it's maybe two inches in diameter. <clears throat> they'll pull yep. several of those through, and then they can uh, push with air fiber optic cables through there. Mm-hmm. Or they could run uh, high-power electricity mm. uh, through these. We've done them for ampacity, basically where they want to know 
how much uh, fill is over the pipe to dissipate heat uh, in the electric lines that they run through mm. these things, which was something I, I found kind of interesting. That is interesting. So there's a world of things that we can actually use these gyros for. And basically what the gyro is doing is it's telling us with a high degree of accuracy uh, <clears throat> from point A where I start to where did I end up at point B and how did I get there? Right. Did I go in a straight line? Did I curve to the right and then swing back to the left and then back to the right? Mm -hmm. It gives you a perfect roadmap of exactly what's going on between point A and point B, nice. which is very useful. So you guys have got to be collecting a massive amount of data while you're doing this, especially job over job. Is there other ways you're using this data? So there is other ways that we use the data. We'll collect this information, uh, say, on the drilling side. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the production people can actually use this, this information later on when they're setting uh, an electric submersible pump mm -hmm. to pump the fluid out of the well. We've got all this data. We can actually analyze it every foot, and we can look at the well bore in three dimension mm -hmm. to let them know whether or not they can stick a, a submersible pump that's typically about 125 to 200 feet long wow. in a spot where it's not going to get twisted around and fail prematurely because they're extremely expensive. Right. So that's one of the ways that we can use it. And, and when they're done producing a well with uh, an electrical submersible pump, uh, due to drawdown, they'll convert it over to a beam pump a lot of times where you see the horse's head moving up and down. And every time you, you pull it up, you, uh, you pull so much oil out of the ground. Right. Well, those holes aren't straight, so they get a lot of side loading in those rods that go down to the pump. Mm. So we can help them with that and show them where all that high side loading is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Excellent. So, so the data coming off of these things, I mean, this isn't this isn't the 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 actual old gyroscopes with the what did you call them gimbals? <laughs> the gimbals, yeah, not at all. Yeah, today's gyroscope looks very different. I'm assuming it's probably something more like microchips and and different micro sensors. Well, very good point. We still run spinning mass gyros, and the smallest one that we run is about the diameter of a penny, so it's extremely small. <laughs> Uh, but we have new technology now. We've been actually working on this technology for almost 12 years or maybe right at 12 years now. Mm -hmm. And that's solid state gyroscopic technology. So it took that long. Uh, and about two years ago, we got to the point uh, with a manufacturer uh, where we actually got a solid state gyro that could measure earth rate mm. uh, accurately. It's extremely rugged. Um, we had a patent uh, for running multiple MEMS gyros for a long time, uh, for a long time ago. And uh, we had all kinds of assemblies with all these different solid state MEMS, what they call MEMS gyros, which are micro electromechanical devices. Now this is, this is what's in your cell phone, right? Correct. Yeah. And they just, even when with multiple ones, uh, they, they wouldn't, you couldn't average it and measure earth rate because the, the signal that's earth rate is very small. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So what kind of digital technologies are you guys actually using to render the, the data usable? So we actually have our own in-house software uh, that we utilize. Mm -hmm. we, we call this feature uh, MicroGuide. And that's where we, we take this data uh, 
typically at one foot. Um, but we're getting 21.7 data points a second. So uh, if we survey, say, a 10,000-foot piece of pipe, mm -hmm. we've got a lot of information, right? But we process that out. We, we come up with a, a data point every foot. And then we can run this through what we call microguide, and that's where we actually get a three-dimensional picture of the entire wellbore. Yeah. And it tells us how tortuous is it, how much does it change, mm -hmm. uh, different things that are happening with it. And that can be very important in, in both the petroleum industry and the construction industry. Yeah. Like I said, if, you want, if you're going from point A to point B. I can imagine. That sounds, sounds very useful. So, so the end result, you actually have a three-dimensional image. You're, you're looking at the inside of this uh, well boring, just like if your eyeballs were in there staring around at it, right? Well, to a certain extent. Okay. Just the, just the geometric shape of it. Yeah. What about like the roughness of the walls and things like that? Is it picking up that kind of resolution? We're not picking up that resolution. Okay. I'm just curious. No, that kind of <laughs> we can see if something's buckled mm -hmm. over a couple of feet, we can pick that up. But like if, if, uh, if it's out around or we can't measure ovality mm -hmm. or if there's a little bit of a, uh, uh, pitting or anything going on right. like that. Okay. We can't do that with the gyro. I'm just trying to visualize it. You know, we do a lot of surveying and, and the different facilities that we work in with, uh, with drones these days and a lot of 3d surveying with, with different kinds of cameras and they're picking up a lot of stuff. I'm not saying they're picking up that much stuff that, that I'm asking about, but I'm just curious is, is this kind of technology once it goes down to the hole because it's uh, much smaller and you're dealing with smaller areas, just how, 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 resolute it really is <clears throat> yeah like i said uh as far as the actual geometrical uh shape of it as it moves along yeah uh we're getting that relative to up and down left and right gotcha that makes sense we can but it could be where there's some kind of anomaly inside and our centralizers could collapse down just a little bit mm -hmm. we wouldn't really catch that we might see a little blip going through there, uh, but it wouldn't be like, for instance, a caliper log that has all these fingers out that <clears throat> really look at the inside of it mm. in three dimension Gotcha. to let you know if it's pitted or if there's holes in it and things of that nature. Yeah. Well, this is all very interesting, man. I, I think it's a cool technology. What about uh, if, if people were interested in getting into a career in this technology and being a part of the advancements? Uh, what what is a good career path for someone interested in that? So uh, most of the people that uh, that we hire at Jar Data uh, have engineering backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, petroleum engineering. Uh, we have several uh, electrical engineers okay. and mechanical engineers. Gotcha. So typically, an engineering uh, background is what we look for. Okay. Nice. How about geology? Is there any geology guys in there? Um, you know, we've had some uh, a couple of field hands that actually run the equipment that had geology backgrounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, they're typically not as apt to to want to be as interested in this kind of technology as as uh, the other uh, disciplines. Sure, but <clears throat> some of them you you just never know. Yeah, awesome. 
Well, listen, man, this has uh, been very interesting and I appreciate you uh, calling into the show. Um, thanks so much for being on Rob. And uh, I'll, uh, is there anything else you want to share with the audience before we go? No, I just wish everybody the best and uh, hope we get through it. And by the time people are listening to this, life's back to normal. Oh, man, me too. Me too. I'll second that. All right. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. You bet.